Everybody needs a Bible today. Didn't bring a Bible. Look in the pew rack in front of you. Look to page 62. Page 62. Everybody is going to need a Bible. Everybody is going to need a Bible. Get a Bible. Pew, pew Bible is found in Luke chapter 19. If you could find that with your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If not, look in the pew rack, get a Bible, turn to page 62. It's Luke chapter number 19. And I'm going to read a very brief passage beginning with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. This is what we just celebrated here. Verse 28, Luke 19. After he, Jesus, had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Does anybody, did you ever memorize those four words, going up to Jerusalem? Is it marked anybody's Bible? Did underscored, underline anybody's Bible? Going up to Jerusalem? I mean, what is that? Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, on this Palm Sunday, those four words are powerful, strategic, timely, and all of history goes before those four little words that most of us have just looked over. You said, well, it, it, it's, it's a geography thing. We know Jesus had been in Jericho. Now he was going to Jerusalem. It's geography. Others would say, well, it's a matter of topography because we know that Jericho was about what, 840 feet below sea level, not far from the Dead Sea, which is about 14 to 1,500 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the earth. And going up to Jerusalem, about 2,400 feet above sea level. So maybe this little phrase, going up to Jerusalem, is just a geographical thing. Jericho to Jerusalem are a thing of topography, let me tell you something. Those four little words were anticipated, prophesied about, looked forward to, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and most of us have just flipped through them. We, we didn't think about it. Who would think about going up to Jerusalem? Man, perhaps it's the most neglected passage in all the Bible. Goes back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they realized they were naked and ashamed and they hid themselves and God killed an animal, probably a lamb, to cover their sin. Innocent blood of an animal shed for the covering of sin. And that began what is called the trail of blood all the way through the Bible. Like Hebrews said, there is no 
forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And we see it goes all the way through to the Passover when the lamb was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost and the death angel would pass by and spare this family of faith. It goes all the way through the minor prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that would be slain for the remission of sin, for the redemption of the world. This little phrase is all the way built and built and built and built until finally you go to the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel's an interesting book. You go back there when the children of Israel, many of the Jews were taken captivity into Babylon between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And they were held there until King Artaxerxes of Babylon, bam, began the clock of God and sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to reestablish the city. And so we, here we have an early Palm Sunday type celebration of Jews leaving Babylon, going all the way back to Jerusalem. And then Daniel prophesies, 70 times 70 years will go by before Messiah once again would have a celebration and march back into Jerusalem and Sir Richard Johnson, Scotland Yard lawyer, brilliant mathematician, devoted Christian, took that word in Daniel of prophecy somewhere between, somewhere between 490 years it would transpire between Artaxerxes went back to Jerusalem until 490 years would go by from Jerusalem. There it took place in A.D. 32, June the 6th, last week to us. There would be 483 years trying to take in calendar changes and considerations until once again, Messiah, the parade would go into Jerusalem. Amazing. The Garden of Eden, the lamb that was slain, the Passover lamb, the prophecy in Isaiah, Daniel, those years that would take place before once again, it would be April this time in that day in the second century when the Jews would go marching all the way into Zion, all the way into Zion. What a moment. We call it the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. But it all began with those four little words going all the way back to the beginning of history, all the way through the sacrificial system, ladies and gentlemen, established there in Jerusalem for God's people. It hinges on going up to Jerusalem. Do you see the significance of that little phrase, 
from the beginning of time all the way through the exact number of years between 483, 490 years, bang, exactly, Jesus, Jesus, second century, A.D., first century, right there, marching back to Zion. God planning all of this, and we just sort of overlook going up, ascending to Jerusalem. But the setting here in Luke is absolutely fabulous. After the scene is set, you've got verses all the way from verse 25 to verse 35. There is the arrangement to get a donkey in the act. <laughs> is that the silliest thing? A donkey in the act, and Jesus sends two of his disciples to go to Bethany, right around the Mount of Olives there, and you would find a donkey, they said, attached up, and when you go and get that donkey that had never been ridden on, a colt, and bring that donkey to me as he is going all the way from Jericho in a procession all the way up to Jerusalem and bring that donkey. And he said, if somebody asked you, you know, why are you untying the donkey? You tell them the master has need of it. Preparation. The master has need of it. And so they took that donkey, and then look what happened. Why a donkey, by the way? Ezekiel 9.9. 9. Riding on a donkey when you would go in a city would tell everybody, you come as peace. You come as king, a king of peace. Emperors, generals would ride into town on a white stallion or pulling a, a golden chariot to say, I've come as a conqueror or a would-be conqueror, but riding on a donkey. Can you picture that? I, I've thought about that. Here comes Jesus, King Jesus of peace, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey. I've asked people years ago about what it'd be like to jump on the back of a donkey that had never been ridden. <laughs> they said, you'd better hold on. You're not going to make it. Very few rodeo cowboys could handle that. A brand new donkey, a colt. And someone else said, if as he rode that donkey, Jesus must have had great hands. Great hands. So read that they took a coat and threw it over the donkey and put Jesus up on the donkey, verse 35. And then you have a celebration. Verse 36, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the ground. And as soon he was approaching near the ascent of the Mount of Olives. By the way, the other Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And they begin to take off their coats, and for most of them, this was all that they had. It was their prized possession. They would tell by their coats, their profession, tell by their coats who they were, their place in society. And they took their coats off, and they made a carpet. And maybe they didn't have enough coats. They went and got palm branches, and they made a total carpet there for Jesus to come riding into Jerusalem. The Son of God, God-man, Riding on a donkey, 
riding on a donkey. You wonder, well, how many people were there in this triumphal entry? A few years later, they took a survey and they discovered that on a typical Passover, remember this is when Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the most important feast of the year. And they counted one year and they said 250,000 lambs were killed in one Passover. And usually a lamb would provide a Passover meal for a minimum of 10 people in a family. And therefore you have 1.5 to 1.6 million visitors in Jerusalem and all the surrounding territories to celebrate the Passover. Cause I can tell you, this was some kind of crowd. Following Jesus up from Jericho, they just seen a fabulous thing. They saw that Zacchaeus, uh, his whole family was converted and, and they saw miracles take place and they were following him from Jericho as he was going up to Jerusalem. And you can be sure some of those who were already in Jerusalem, they were coming down to meet him. And so we have people literally from all over the world and many Gentiles went just because it was such a moment of celebration. Like some of you go to the Super Bowl and you know a football from a basketball. They didn't know, they didn't understand, but boy, this is where the action was. So just imagine lining the roads, paved way, their coats they'd taken off. What a moment, and Jen, look at the story. It just stands alone. That's the reason I wanted you to have your Bibles open. It said, as soon as he, nearing the descent on the Mount of Olives, let me tell you something, folks. If you've been to the Holy Land, I hope you had the chance to go around that curve there on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and as you approach Jerusalem, you can look back over the whole city. Look at it. It's a magnificent view. They're looking down on the city. That's, that's a modern view, and the ancient view was no less. It is a panorama perspective that is mind-boggling. And this is the situation. Jesus riding on a donkey, coats, palm trees, and he goes back, and you can look and see the whole city. And then you look at, look what it says. The whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory on earth. Let me tell you something. They began to praise God. They praised him with a loud voice, a loud voice. That's what we try to create in miniature today with our triumphal entry, with a loud voice, praise be to God. They would say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Hosanna in the Old Testament meant save us. In the New Testament, it changed meaning and it not only meant savior, but it says, thank you that we are saved. So they're saying hallelujah, hosanna. 
Oh, make a joyful noise in the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. We're like sheep of his pasture. We're his people. And the praise goes on and on and on and on, shouting joyfully. And the word joyfully, they weren't timid about it. They were overwhelmed at the moment as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem all their life. This has been the moment of revelation and consummation of the kingdom of God going up to Jerusalem. But in that crowd, there were three kinds of people there. Not unlike what would be in a service of worship. There would be those who genuinely worshiped. They really worshiped the Lord. It was kind of spontaneous. Have you had those moments in your life? Have you? When you were so overwhelmed with sadness or joy or exaltation, you just fall down, you cried, you shouted, you got out of character, you just worshiped him. I've had those times, just spontaneous worship. Nothing else you could do but to praise or to cry or to shout or, or to fall on your face. I've fallen my face and I've dug a hole in the dirt to try to get lower down. Have you had those moments? Have you had those moments? Joyful praise with a loud voice, overwhelmed with God's presence, overwhelmed with what was going on all around you, what you were facing, whether a mountaintop or a valley. Praise, praise, hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There were genuine worshipers there who were overwhelmed with that moment in time that they were experiencing. But also there were misguided worshipers. The misguided worshipers, they thought that Jesus was coming. And by the way, you couldn't tell the difference from who took off their coat, who put palm branches down, who were shouting and praying. You couldn't tell the difference from the misguided worshipers from the genuine worshipers. They did all the same things the genuine worshipers did. What was the difference? The misguided worship thought Jesus was coming to establish a political kingdom. Oh, yes. That was a stream of prophecy that said it will come in the second coming, not in the first coming, that a kingdom would be established and the Romans would be eliminated. A lot of people go to church, that's your primary deal. Man, let's save America, I'm for it. But salvation America is not gonna come when we get all that we want. Me, 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 my, my, mine, this is the way I like it. That's what those who didn't understand worship were all about. That's what they didn't get. They thought Jesus was coming to set a political kingdom. Some of his own apostles were misguided like that. Remember James and John got their mother to go see Jesus and said, you know, what position are my boys gonna have when you set up your kingdom? Misguided worship. Now certainly we in America hope there'll be revival and we hope we'll have a government that will allow us 
to talk and preach and proclaim the name of Jesus as our freedom of liberty. But by the same token, that's not going to bring in the kingdom of God. We could take and have George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Billy Graham brought back and all that type of people could hold every office in our land and that would not be the answer. The answer comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. So don't be misguided here. They thought the kingdom was going to come. <laughs> We're going to we'll get rid of these Romans and fill in the blanks. We're going to get rid of the blank. You could fill it in. That's not it. They were misguided in their understanding of the church, understanding of Christ, understanding what is coming. And therefore, they were genuine worshipers. They got it. They knew the death, the sacrifice, the cross, the atonement. They knew that was a price on his head, and he was marching to Zion, but it meant ultimately his death. Some of them got that. Most of them were misguided, saying, oh, boy, the Son of God has come, Messiah. We're going to get rid of all these undesirables. We're going to change our government. We're going to go back once again and be a thoroughgoing theocracy. And then there's a third group of worshipers. And they're really not worshipers. They are none worshipers. They're not really worshiping. I'm sure they were there in the crowd. I hope there are none like that here. But it tells us about them. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees, why? The Pharisees, that's the most religious people that anybody will ever know. Their religiosity was outside. And the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they were saying, they're treating you as if you were the Messiah, as if you were God. My Jesus, rebuke these people. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What's he saying? If these with all the worship, the celebration, the coats, the, the palm branches, it, it, they were not shouting and praying and singing songs to God in Zion at this moment when I'm going up to Jerusalem, he said these stones would praise. These stones would cry out and sing. And I said, there must have been a big old rock over there. And they said, oh, that stone's a base. And there's a little stones over here, it's shiny. And there are the sopranos. And there are some stones over here that are multicolored. And there are the altos. And, and, and he looked and said, these very rocks would shout. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes nature gives more praise than some of us who don't get it, who are non-worshippers. The trees clap their hands, the brooks sing songs, and all of creation, inanimate and animate, sometimes it gets ahead of us when we don't realize and capture the moment of worship, i.e. Palm Sunday here. Jesus said the stones would cry out if this praise wasn't here to those non-worshippers. And then he elaborates in this chapter in, in a fabulous thing. And he says, when he approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. 
Now, Jesus was not a weeper. He cried one other time when Lazarus died. We went over that last week, in fact. Jesus didn't weep when he was in a storm, and he wasn't afraid. He went to sleep. He didn't weep in times of embarrassment, in times of shame, in times of pain. He didn't weep. But he looked at Jerusalem from that fabulous view, and he wept. He wept because, and he tells us right in the Scripture, I hope you're following it with me. He saw the city and he wept, saying, if you had known this day, going up to Jerusalem, even you, the things which made for peace now and peace forever, but now you have been, you have been hidden from your eyes, and now they have been hidden from your eyes. And for the days will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. What's he saying? He's saying to that crowd that was there, I'm weeping over Jerusalem because of what it should be, because of what it should have become, and I'm weeping because all of you have basically missed it. And he said, you didn't know. You didn't know. And he said, you didn't see. And he said, did you get it? Judgment is going to come, and it did 70 years later. We know that happens. The Romans came under Titus and they leveled Jerusalem and not a stone was left on top of another stone and it basically was a pile of rocks. Jesus wept over cause they didn't see and they didn't know and they didn't understand. Judgment is going to come, especially to those who've been especially blessed. Those Jews. Do you realize how pious they are? How pious they were? From birth all the way through life, they were taught at home every day. Their mother and dad would pray over them at night. They would pray over them in the morning. They would pray over them as they go out. They wore on their body phylacteries. That means they had on their forehead tied their scripture. They had on their arms and their hands tied to Scripture. It would be Deuteronomy 6. It would be Exodus 13. Deuteronomy 6 says exactly who God is. Exodus 13 says you're to love the Lord thy God with your heart, soul, mind, and body, and talked about the firstborn is so sacred to God, all in the prophetic stream. And they didn't get it. He said when you go out the door, when you come in the door, you go to sleep, you wake up, you eat your meals, all of this in anticipation, ladies and gentlemen, of those four little words going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus wept. And the word weep there is he cried almost uncontrollably. Because though they had it all, they were to be the evangelists to the world. They were to be the unique place where God did business. And though he went from the triumphal entry, he went right into the temple, and what did he do? 
He cleaned house of those who were using God's house for exploitation, for money and for profit. And where, where did they have all these money changers in the temple? If you know something about the temple, they had the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles were people who were non-Jews, court of the women, court of the rest of the Jews in the synagogue, but they had the court of the Gentiles. And that's where Gentiles could come and watch all of Israel worshiping. And that's where many Gentiles saw the genuineness of their praise and their prayer and their brokenness and their morality and the principles that God had built into Israel. And when these Gentiles came, many of them said, I want to know this God, this true God. It was a moment of evangelism. But the Jews had gone and they had written out all the Gentiles. Now they had money exchangers. They were selling people for sacrifices and they had totally lost the thrust of the purpose that God had sent the Jews in the world to do was to bring salvation and God's truth to everybody. And they turned it into a business, a profit center where nobody could come who weren't Jews and see the worship of his people. Oh yeah, there were three groups of people there. The genuine worshipers who knew that sacrifice, that death was to come, a few those who misguided, thinking, boy, Jesus is going to come and set and run these Romans out. We're going to have a, a whole kingdom to ourselves. Everything's going to be wonderful. And then the non-worshippers. Somehow they didn't see it. They didn't know. They didn't realize judgment was to come. And then he summarizes this. Hope you have your Bibles open. With the final little phrase. He said, why did all this happen? He said, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, stay with that a little bit. Here are these Jews. Here's all of them by million plus. They missed, though all of prophecy, all their history, everything had been pointed to this moment in history when Jesus would go up into Jerusalem. They missed that, and he said, this took place because you didn't know what was happening. You missed the time of visitation. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps the greatest fear in my life is to miss when the Holy Spirit would say something to me, would speak to me, would lead me to move, would lead me to confess, would lead me to pray, would lead me to do whatever miss the time of visitation. When I read, they took off their coats. I watched the Masters. I've been to the Masters golf tournament. It's taking place right now. It's quite an event. It may be the social event of the year in the United States of America for the haves, not the have-nots. And if you have won a master's tournament and made a skillion dollars doing it, you get a green jacket. And if you are a member of the Augusta National Club, you too get a green jacket. The green jacket began when Bobby Jones won 
at the Royal Liverpool Golf Course, the British Open back in 1927. And he saw those in that club, they all wore red hunting jackets and they looked so formal and sophisticated. He said, he took that back to the masters and in 1937, they began to wear the green jacket, those who won and those who were members, it became a very prestigious thing. In the beginning, the green jacket indicated anybody who came in the club, those who had green jackets had to service them, they had to guide them, they had to help them, see that they got situated, see that they got pleased. And when they were seated at a place where they were eating, those waiters would see they always gave the check to the person who had on the green jacket. That's how it began. Prestigious event, prestigious event. I wonder, I wonder, going into the masters, I've had the privilege of going there. Magnolia Lane, it's a beautiful entrance, magnolia trees. You see right in the main clubhouse when you go in, you've seen on television probably. I wonder if today, they're playing today. That Jesus would walk down Magnolia Lane. He'd be known who he was, the Son of God. Even with that knowledge, I wonder how many would take off their green jacket and put it down. Or tear some magnolia leaves off and put it down and worship the Son of God. I got one better than that, folks. What if today, going down Woodway and Voss, there would be that Palm Sunday celebration and Jesus would come leading, leaving, leaving believers right down here and he would look right through these walls without any problem. I wonder if he would not be disappointed when some here miss their day of visitation. Miss their day of visitation. I wonder if he'd look and say, boy, there, there's a real worshiper. There's a confused worshiper, a misguided worshiper. And there's a, a non-worshiper because they've never received Christ, that new life that he's provided for the whole wide world. 